Well, hello there again, people of the world. Congratulations on tuning in to probably one of the most obscure little podcasts in the modern era. This is the Nasty Pasty podcast, hosted by a Welshman of dubious origins who peddles pseudo-academic nonsense about controversial horror films all day, with the occasional segue into video games. That, of course, is me, and I am Andy Roberts, self-professed video nasty enthusiast, censorship critic, and all-round exploitation and extreme cinema lover. While I wasn't alive to experience the event firsthand, the 1980s in Britain were rather glum, with low employment, strikes and riots, and budget cuts from the Tories were the order of the day. But instead of actually admitting any fault and fixing the country, however, the politicians decided to tackle an illusory problem, that of supernaturally imbued VHS tapes, which were somehow able to make the viewer commit vile atrocities from simply one viewing. A list of films was generated, fuelled by busybodies and gossip rags, which the government then turned over to the police to seize from shops, despite the fact that murders, burglaries, assaults and rapes were probably being committed all over the country. The truly sad thing, of course, is that real people were arrested, humiliated, charged and even imprisoned for doing nothing more than selling horror films. It wasn't right then, and it certainly isn't now, which is the very reason that this podcast exists. I never want this to be forgotten, as by doing so, it opens up the opportunity for the government to do this once more should the need arise again for a new moral panic. To highlight the fraudulent and highly idiotic behaviour of those involved, I peruse some films from the era of the video nasties, roughly from Blood Feast in 1963 to Revenge of the Bogeyman in 1983. For argument's sake, however, I'll extend it from 1960 to 1990, as the Video Recordings Act, which was installed as a result of the nasty panic, adversely affected most releases in late 80s in Britain. Anyhow, on to today's subject, which is the final time that we'll be covering the very controversial rape and revenge genre. I'm throwing animals into the mix, though, because it appears that by coincidence, animals are also featured quite prominently in these two films. They are the 1978 British drug-addled, questionably flippant shocker, Killer's Moon, and the grimy, grungy, feminist fueled vigilante film, Miss 45. A bit of a mixed bag, really, considering it's International Women's Day, but we'll start, though, with the British film, Alan Birkinshaw's Killer's Moon.
a coach full of privately schooled singing girls, including Agatha, Sandy, Mary, Carol, Anne, Elizabeth, Sue and Deirdre, are passing through the country when the driver notices the engine smoking and pulls over to take a look. A local man called Pete, who's jogging, gathers some water from a nearby stream to cool it off, as the girls stretch their legs a bit before resuming their journey. Nearby, a couple in a tent, Mike and Julie, have just finished having sex and are interrupted by a dog who's suddenly missing a leg, bearing a fresh wound where it used to be. Pete turns up as Julie leaves to go back to a hotel where she works, and after reuniting with his pal Mike and helping bandage the dog, Pete looks outside for some firewood, only to discover that his axe has gone missing. In Whitehall in London, three doctors are discussing an urgent matter involving a number of patients that have escaped, the recipients of an experimental treatment involving drugs, as part of therapy that involves simulating dreams. Back at the coach, it breaks down yet again further down the road, as the girls ponder what will happen to them, only for their teachers, Mrs Hargreaves and Miss Lilac, to decide to take the girls and seek out a local hotel. Back in Whitehall, the doctors discuss each of the patients who've escaped. All of them are violent sex offenders, but one of them is a multiple murderer of children, another is a homosexual, and another is a religiously motivated psychotic. Back in the country, an elderly groundskeeper called Bert encounters the three-legged dog and helps it to get to his home, while the schoolgirls are still being led by their teachers in the dark. Suddenly encountering Bert, he lets them know of a hotel just up ahead and leads them there where, despite being out of season, the hotel owner, Mrs May, lets them inside. The exception being the bus driver, who decides to head back to the coach and as he hears a twig snap in the middle of the woods, he is suddenly slain when someone jams an axe into his neck. After Mrs May fixes the guests some dinner, she offers Mrs Hargreaves to use the phone to call for help, but the line goes dead after connecting to the operator. Bert has a cup of tea made by his wife Enid, and after mentioning that he thinks something is outside, goes out to look with his gun. Enid accidentally cuts herself with a knife and goes to take care of it, unaware that one of the escaped patients, called Jones, has just walked into the house, who proceeds to hack off the tail of their cat. Enid returns and defends herself against Jones with a knife, only for him to strangle her to death. Back at the hotel, Agatha is made to help Mrs May with her chores, but after Sandy comes in as well, Mrs May begins to cry as her daughter Julie has still not returned. Offering to help by going for the nearest phone box, Sandy goes outside and finds the mangled corpse of Bert in a pile of leaves. Suddenly running into Mike, Sandy tells him of Bert's corpse, so he takes her back to the tent where Pete is and after suddenly hearing a sound outside, it appears that Julie has returned, who describes her rape at the hands of three lunatics. As all the schoolgirls do a final sing-song at the house before bed, three of the lunatics, Smith, Muldoon and Trubshaw, head towards the building through the fields, singing back to the girls in a mocking way. They break inside, causing Miss Lilac to faint on the floor, just as Anne comes down to investigate. Smith grabs her and, pinning her to the sofa, proceeds to molest and rape her. Mrs Hargreaves comes downstairs and screams for the men to stop, only to be grabbed and choked to death by Jones, who has returned from Bert's house. As the killers ascend upstairs, Agatha, Elizabeth and Deirdre barricade themselves into their room after spotting them, while Pete enters Bert's cottage to find Enid pinned to the back door with a knife through her throat. Just as he finds this, he's attacked by Jones, who has returned, but he becomes freaked out after seeing his face reflected in a mirror. 
Mike comes across Bert's corpse and liberates his rifle, just as the lunatics manage to lure Mary out of her room and use her as blackmail to get Agatha and her roommates to leave their rooms. They force them into the kitchen to cook for them, still believing themselves to be inside a dream. Pete manages to gain access to the house and sneaks into the room of Sue and Carol, successfully having them escape by climbing down a ladder. Just as Trobshaw is about to discover this, Agatha distracts him by pulling down her blouse so that he turns away from the window. Pete, Carol and Sue manage to reach the woods, but as Jones is returning, Pete distracts him, allowing the two girls to escape. But unfortunately, the pair end up crossing paths with him anyway, who chases Sue towards the lake edge where she's cornered. Her dress snags on a nail and tears her nightie off as Jones grabs her by the throat and chokes her to death. Nearby, Sandy and Julie almost meet their end when Jones discovers their tent and repeatedly stabs it with a pitchfork, only to be saved when the three-legged dog returns and savages Jones to death. In the kitchen, the lunatics begin to question whether they are actually in a dream after all, only for Muldoon to try and prove it by molesting Deirdre. Miss Lilac reawakens just as Mike and Peter enter the house, causing her to faint all over again. Hatching a plan to rescue the girls, Pete dresses up as one of them and distracts Trubshaw enough for Agatha, Mary, Deirdre and Elizabeth to run with Mike into the basement, where they find Anne hiding. Muldoon suggests to the others that they're not in a dream after all, causing them to seek out the missing girls with much more effort. As they hide in the basement, the three men descend to their level, just as Mike throws a match on some petrol that they've shaken everywhere, trapping the trio in an inferno, which kills Smith in the blaze. After Mike reunites the girls with Sandy and Julie outside, Pete returns to rescue Miss Lilac, only to encounter Muldoon and Trubshaw, who shoot at him with a rifle. Trubshaw corners Pete and is about to kill him outside, until Agatha arrives on the scene, hacking Trubshaw to death with a sickle. Alone in the house, Muldoon babbles incoherently in the basement, while Miss Lilac awakens once more, hearing that crying from the basement. Investigating it, she is horrified to discover Muldoon crying over Smith's burnt corpse, which he's dressed in a nightdress and a wig. Leaving him, Agatha, Miss Lilac, Mike, Peter and Julie exit the house as a policeman drives up to the estate. As the film ends, Mrs May's stabbed corpse is seen on a bench in the grounds. One of those nights, Pete. Blood on the moon, one mangled dog, one missing axe and one lost girl who's just found a body at the wrong end of the axe. How's that for the great English outdoors? Here. What's your name? Sandra. Sandy. Don't talk about me as if I wasn't here. It was a gamekeeper. He was a nice man. Did you see anyone else? Yes. More than one. Oh, I don't know. Why would anyone kill a game kibble with an axe? I was only going out to make a telephone call. There's someone outside. I know there is. We're not safe here. I'm not scared of you, whoever you are. I'm back. That's the way they behave. We've got to have a plan. We're safer if we stick together. What's there to be afraid of? What's happened? Are you all right? Sandy, 
come and help, will you? Bring some brandy. Hey. like surgeons. Their eyes were staring. They raped me. Ah, look, Arto, we've got to get the police. How? Leave me alone with her. I could do with some hot water and don't go far. I'm not likely to. Alrighty. Killer's Moon is a surprising film in a lot of ways, mainly because it really speaks about the power of the written word compared to what we can visually see. A considerable problem with the video nasties was that the VHS sleeves themselves were almost a hypnotic phantasmagoria of violent, sexualized, and glorified imagery, beckoning the unsuspecting video shop customer to pick it up and browse the cover. Since there was no real advertising for the mainly obscure titles that made it onto pre-cert VHS, the cover really encompassed all the marketing that the audience would have seen before choosing a film. To that end, not only did the cover imagery have to be provocative and alluring, but the copy and synopsis had to be similarly enticing. Quite often, the film's tagline or the sleeve copy was a catalyst for their seizure by the DPP such as Driller Killer, which advertised that you'd require a stomach of steel to watch it, or Absurd, which boasted not for the squeamish on its cover. Killer's Moon is a true example of why the written word cannot truly be trusted to give you an indication of just how violent or intense a film scenes really are. The synopsis that I've wrote for it may sound actually rather exciting and attractive for the exploitation fan, but while it pains for me to say it, It's not all it's cracked up to be, unfortunately, as the film's shortcomings really do dampen some of the effect that it could have had. It's not a complete failure, however. It does have some strange watchability about it, and simply for being outraged and gobsmacked at some of the film's characters and situations. It has a smattering of violence, too, combined with some truly ridiculous dialogue. For this reason, I'd say it's actually a rather fun film, but it's for the completely wrong reasons. It really falls short of the lurid, grisly manner in which I described the basic plot. The film starts off in relatively good standing, actually, giving us a bog-standard, contrived situation to feature a large group of schoolgirls and mentions of four escaped lunatics who are high on LSD, believing that they're inside a dream. It's not that unique, but it is rather endearing as a British person that the action is set in the UK, notably the Lake District, which has some of the more picturesque locations in the country. The tone of the movie, however, is all over the place. Despite the action being set in the heart of green country, the picture quality of the film is rather drab and dull, making the area much more sinister and gloomy than it is in reality. This does lend the film a bit of a moody edge, but it's pitted against some rather amateur editing and some clumsily handled day-for-night shots. The characters, too, are such a ragtag group of British stereotypes, feeling a bit more like the rejects of a carry-on film. You half expect some risque sexual jokes from half of these people, except it's featured in the form of uncomfortable gropings and tearing of nighties. The bus driver, for example, literally looks like he's been plucked from on the buses, with an apple-cheeked smiley face that suggests he's caught sight of a corker of a bird. The schoolgirls are clearly much older girls simply pretending to be school age, which is much more difficult to pull off as British children only stayed in school in this era until they were 16. 
The fact that they wear backpacks or hold teddy bears does little to distract from the fact that they probably have been around the block a few times and had kids at this stage of their lives. Yet despite this, the scenes of troubling sexual violence and sexual politics being played with are just as cringy to watch as you still kind of see them as schoolgirls. There's quite a lot of dichotomy in this film, with you being yanked back and forth between tonal shifts and contrasting approaches. One minute you'll be laughing at some inane dialogue, while the next being horrified as a cat is being mutilated with a kitchen knife. The film started shooting in early 1978 in the Lake District, and in spite of the film's story being set during the warm summer months, it was shot quite early in the year during the bitter winter snap. Director Alan Birkinshaw, however, insisted that the film be shot in sequence, which led to the aforementioned day-for-night sequences. It almost has that British make-do-and-mend attitude running through the work, with the actors and actresses just kind of going along for the ride, irrespective of the film's quality. The majority of the action was at a hotel, specifically the Armathwaite Hall Hotel near Bassenthwaite Lake in Keswick. Funnily enough, the hotel was actually occupied by guests at the time of filming, and the crew and cast also stayed at the hotel for the duration of the shoot. The owners of the hotel at the time were also incredibly generous due to their property being used for the film, offering complimentary meals and drinks for the entire production. The crew also clearly didn't have enough resources to pull off any amazingly spectacular special effects, so they got around it by featuring just a handful on screen, whilst featuring the majority off-screen and only showing the aftermath. It's nice, but there is something about seeing deaths unfold on screen. Another instance of make-do and mend is having some requirement for animals to be injured, but rather than use any gory special effects, they just sourced a three-legged dog to represent the dog in the film that is attacked by an axe. Now, her name was Hannah, and she was sourced from a special dog agency. In reality, she'd actually lost one of her front legs in an attack in which she was defending her owner during a burglary, which earned her the PDSA gold medal for her bravery. Similarly, the real-life owner of Bert and Enid's cottage in the film had a cat who'd lost his tail, so the crew improvised a scene where Jones would hack off the tail with a knife, leaving the actual cat unscathed. The characters and their vocal interactions, though, are probably the most memorable aspect of the film, as they're ridiculously drawn as much as they are goofily hilarious to witness. There's such a lack of focus in the film that it really doesn't feel like there's a natural main protagonist. The attention flits quite sporadically from Agatha and her immediate friends to Pete and Mike, and then to the killers, with intermittent focuses on Sue and Carol, then to Sandy and Julie, and then to Bert and Enid. There's no real central storyteller or main character to get behind, so the film often feels like it's just some disturbing incidental events that are happening in succession. Due to narrative conventions, though, we do tend to focus on the schoolgirls, as they're both the victims and, in essence, the good guys. True, they are on the whole rather reliant on the male characters to save them, but being a film from the 70s, this is hardly a surprise. Agatha is relatively resourceful, able to disturbingly flash a bit of skin to distract one of the lunatics when her friends are escaping via ladder, and even taking matters into her own hands and saving Pete from Trubshaw by cutting into his back with a sickle. She does kind of ruin it, though, with just one of the most jaw-droppingly controversial pieces of advice to her friend Anne, who's just been raped by one of the mental patients. Look, you were only raped. As long as you don't tell anyone about it, you'll be all right. 
You pretend it never happened, I pretend I never saw it, and if we ever get out of this alive, well, maybe we'll both live to be wives and mothers. I actually had to rewind this a couple of times to verify what she said, but yeah, this is actual advice that she gives. I know that rape and revenge movies are supposed to be quite non-PC by their very nature, but I think this is taking the piss. More on the blasé attitude towards rape later, but the older characters like Mrs Hargreaves and Miss Lilac really do highlight some of those British stereotype characters. Hargreaves is the stereotypical battle-axe type teacher who doesn't stand for any nonsense, is orderly and proper, and runs the organisation of her trips with a dose of English arrogance. Miss Lilac, on the other hand, looks and acts very similarly to Barbara from Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Much more meek and timid, Miss Lilac ends up causing a lot of the humour of the film as she simply faints at the slightest hint of danger, falling into unconsciousness at least three times during the runtime. Mike ends up rescuing a considerable number of the girls, but he has such a detached and bored attitude, it makes the current situation seem no more troubling than some broken central heating. In his own words, it's one of those nights, Pete. Blood on the moon, one mangled dog, one missing axe, and a girl who's just found a body. At the wrong end of the axe. How's that for the great British outdoors? I mean, you'd think it was just a bit of bad weather ruining the weekend, rather than some rapey murderers on drugs. His friend Pete seems to lack a real personality, but at least he does some heroics while he's on screen. While Mrs May seems to be quite literally forgotten about halfway through the film, only to turn up as a corpse in the film's final shot. Bert and Enid literally exist just to be slashed and beaten to death, while the cheeky chappy bus driver says a few bumbling lines before he's offed in the same way. Sandy seemed to be getting shaped up into the heroine, only to encounter Bert's corpse and become relegated to a tent for the majority of the film, but again giving terrible advice to Julie on how to get over her gang rape by the men. She also seemingly has a major gaffe in the film, where she says one thing and then immediately says, don't talk about me as if I wasn't here, without any opportunity for anyone else to speak about anything. Julie seems to be present in the film to flash a bit of cleavage in the beginning and to relay the rapacious quality of the film's villains to Mike and Pete before we actually see them. She's not given that much to do after that, just ambling around looking morose, which at least is a little bit more of a realistic response to sexual assault than the just get over it attitude that the film seems to be propagating. Then we have our criminals, Jones, Trubshaw, Muldoon and Smith, who all look rather uniform, but they do have some different qualities to them. Jones is clearly the most violent of the four, being responsible for most, if not all, of the deaths in the movie, mutilating two animals, killing Bert and Enid, strangling Mrs Hargreaves, and chasing down Sue to kill her by the riverside. Other deaths are off-screen or partially obscured, so it's unknown who the actual perpetrator is, but it's a pretty safe bet that it's him. He's large, imposing, and completely brutish in his behaviour, so it's only more satisfying when the three-legged dog returns to deliver an equally brutal vengeance on her attacker, ripping him to shreds and saving Sandy and Julie. Muldoon is an incredibly deranged-looking fellow who's pallid, thin, and extremely sweaty-looking. He looks the most worried of the four, and is one of the first to realise that they may not be participating in a dream after all. When the patients are described by the gentleman at the beginning of the film, they mention that one of them is homosexual, and I believe this to be Muldoon, even in spite of the fact that he attacks one of the girls, which may be from a desire to join in with his comrades and act heterosexual. 
When Smith is burned alive in the basement, Muldoon becomes incredibly disturbed, eating raw eggs and dressing the burnt corpse in a Knightian wig, crying hysterically over the corpse, which is actually a rather overt reference to the ending of Psycho, especially as Miss Lilac comes across the scene and reveals it in exactly the same manner as Vera Miles does in Hitchcock's film. It's interesting, really, as it suggests that he may have been attracted to Smith, which, of course, would never have been reciprocated in the normal way, so Muldoon again tries to reenact a heterosexual partnership by dressing his corpse as female. He's utterly broken by the film's ending, though, leading the protagonists to simply ignore him and leave him alone in the basement. But this does bring to light a rather beneficial ending, as usually in these films all the antagonists are dead, leaving it all in the hands of the protagonist to explain to the police what's happened, which I doubt in most cases would really hold water. At least with Muldoon alive, it gives some of their stories some credibility. Smith is the more rapacious of the group, and has some bizarre notions of women, suggesting that they should know how to cook for men implicitly, dealing out a groping or a rape when the girls disagree. Trubshaw, who wears a bowler hat, seems to be just having a whale of a time terrorising his victims, rather than causing any direct damage. But he does get serious after Smith's death by pursuing Pete with a shotgun. He dies anyway when Agatha gouges him with a small sickle. The overall look of the patients is clearly inspired by Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, wearing white overalls, black dress shoes and bowler hats with Trubshaw even utilising a walking cane for the majority of the runtime. Their language, too, is particularly eloquent and flowery, with the exception of Jones, hearkening back to the droogs led by Malcolm McDowell in the former movie. Normally, I put the strangely insensitive sexual politics down to just lazy or inept writing, but the writer of the film was actually the prominent feminist Faye Sheldon, who not only writes novels, but critical essays and plays. In some ways, this actually makes sense within the film's tone of make-do and mend, as Sheldon was the main driver behind the advertising slogan of Go to Work on an Egg, one of the most successful advertising campaigns of buying the simple chicken's egg. It seems rather odd, though, for a feminist writer to write dialogue that glosses over the really traumatic aspects of a rape, and it just didn't sit right with me. Rather unfortunately, however, Faye Sheldon would make the headlines 20 years later in 1998 for claiming that rape isn't the worst thing that can happen to a woman if you're safe, alive and unmarked after the event. It's quite hard to reconcile the rather non-PC elements of Killer's Moon when the scriptwriter actually apparently believes that rape is actually not that much to be bothered about. If you're listening out there though, Miss Sheldon, I'm telling you that I disagree. As a rape survivor myself, I'm here to say that it really can be one of the most life-shattering and devastatingly damaging experiences that you can have. I know that as a male, her statement doesn't necessarily apply to me, but I'm honestly at a loss that someone who makes a sweeping statement like that could ever consider herself truly feminist. That statement of it's not such a big deal only perpetuates the rape culture that's evident in the world, especially as it's coming from someone who is generally regarded with a great deal of critical and literary respect. Still, I learn more and more every day that you have to separate the art from the artists, as humans are just not so black and white, so I'm willing to give this uncomfortable sentiment a pass simply just because of the era that the film was made in. One positive of Sheldon's contribution, however, was that she regretted giving the female victims the dialogue that she did, as she felt that the film worked better with her original script, where they had zero character whatsoever. 
She does believe today, though, that the silly dialogue is the reason that the film has lasted for such a long time, as it's become a bit of a cult movie for its ineptitude. The underlying feeling of flippancy, though, extends to other sequences too, such as the scene where the officials discuss the escaped patients in detail, mentioning each of their characteristics. Not only are there only three patients mentioned at first when there's actually four escaped, but the personalities don't quite get embodied when we do meet them on screen. They're all rather similar in their behaviour, no one in particular acts in a religiously aggravated fashion, and while I suspect Muldoon is the homosexual one, it's so subtle that you wonder why they'd even mention it so prominently. This disconnect is not really addressed either, it's just sort of thrown away. So too is the minister's comment of, my god, in my dreams I murder freely, pillage, loot and rape which is quite a shocking admission for anyone to make, let alone a politician. But instead of a gasp or some form of outrage, there's just a puzzled, you do, from his companions. Even a small moment where Agatha wins a poker round by getting a royal flush is treated no more excitingly than if she avoided paying income tax on Monopoly. I mean, do the characters know how rare royal flushes are? Even the gore effects, to an extent, suffer from the rather blasé attitude. The bus driver gets an axe to the neck, which is rather nice, but then most of the subsequent deaths are aftermath shots, removing some of that excitement. Enid does have a particularly nasty-looking demise by having a kitchen knife rammed through her throat, but it's not dwelt upon for very long, so it's a bit of a skirted opportunity. Everything that should be pretty outrageous, rousing or shocking is all treated just so low-key, which has the rather contradictory effect of numbing some of the effect that the film has, whilst leaving you gobsmacked later that it's been treated with such a lack of attention. In conclusion, Killer's Moon is quite a jumbled film of contradictions. While it clearly borrows from stuff like Last House on the Left, Psycho and A Clockwork Orange, it can never really rise to the levels of those exploitation films because of the lack of passion and enthusiasm present in those examples. It's ultimately a rather flimsy and insipid effort for the most part, but for people like me who love trash films, there is a strange charm and aura about it which is enjoyable. There's frequent doses of cheapness where the lack of budget really shows, but the film plods on regardless, which is pretty admirable, and the inane dialogue, combined with the stereotypical yet out-of-place British characters, is nothing short of endearing and gobsmacking in equal measure. Don't expect a masterpiece, certainly, but if you can handle the expected levels of cheapness, there's probably treasures for you to enjoy in Killer's Moon. Pete was played by Canadian actor Anthony Forrest, who'd made appearances in Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, and The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977, the year prior to Killer's Moon being released. Tom Marshall played the role of Mike, who'd appeared in Carry On Dick and various other British TV programmes, whilst Agatha was played by Georgina Keane, who also equally appeared on a few brief UK TV shows. Trubshaw was played by David Jackson, who was in 1971's Blood from the Mummy's Tomb and an episode of Only Fools and Horses. Actress Joanne Good, who played Mary, was likewise in an episode of Only Fools and Horses, whilst her co-star Jane Lester, who played Elizabeth, was in a James Kenham Clark film called Let's Get Laid in the same year as Killer's Moon. Anne was played by Lisa Vanderpump, who's appeared in Wildcats at St Trinian's, but she also branched out into producing, namely the show Vanderpump Rules, in which she became a reality TV star due to her lifestyle as one of the real housewives of Beverly Hills. Actress Jean Reeve played the role of headmistress Miss Hargreaves, 
whose only other credit of note is the ice cream lady from the Inbetweeners, whom Jay believes is a schoolboy-obsessed nympho. Hilda Braid appeared as Mrs May, whose most famous role is that of Nana Moon on EastEnders, a role that she kept for three years. One of the psychiatrists was played by Hugh Ross, who played a small role in 1990's Nightbreed, 1996's Trainspotting, and most recently, the Margaret Thatcher film The Iron Lady. Director Alan Birkinshaw's career was relatively small, but he did get a varied mix of different productions, such as 1974's The Man Who Couldn't Get Enough, 1982's Invaders of the Lost Gold, Ten Little Indians, and The Mask of Red Death, both from 1989. We've also sort of encountered him before as well. He shot the additional sequences of dialogue and gore for the Christmas-themed slasher movie Don't Open Till Christmas. Birkinshaw also wrote the film along with Faye Sheldon and even produced it as well. The film's bizarro soundtrack was done by John Shakespeare, who worked on Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Top Gear and even BBC Breakfast. Arthur Lavis did the cinematography, who also worked on the director's other films like Ten Little Indians and The Man Who Couldn't Get Enough, while the editor David White had also worked on the latter film. That's about it though for the crew, it was a particularly small production this time around. Killer's Moon did have a limited theatrical release in 1978, where it very surprisingly passed uncut at Certificate X. This uncut version was released on VHS subsequently by Interocean Video in 1981, smack dab in the midst of the video nasty controversy. Interocean were already on the DPP's radar for releasing the Section 3 nasties Wrong Way and Enter the Devil, so particular attention to their 114 titles on the market would have been paid by the police forces. And wouldn't you just know it folks, Killer's Moon was actually one of the ones that was seized by the police after all presumably due to the fact that the film contains several sequences of sexual violence and some bloody moments with a theme of drugged-up mental patients assaulting and molesting a group of British schoolgirls in their 90s, was probably considered troubling. Though it was seized, the police presumably returned it when they found out that the cinema version was passed uncut as well, which would have made a successful prosecution nigh on impossible. The tape disappeared after the Video Recordings Act came into effect in 1985, and it wouldn't reappear again until the film was released on DVD by Redemption Films in the 2000s. A remastered version, though, was released on Blu-ray by Screenbound Pictures in 2017, so it is out there if you wanted to see this bunch of madness. Let's wave goodbye, though, to Killer's Moon, and go straight on to our next film, Miss 45.
In New York's garment district, a young mute girl called Tharna finishes her work as a seamstress and heads home, stopping briefly at a shopping mart for some groceries. As Tharna walks past an alleyway, she is suddenly grabbed by a masked man who holds her at gunpoint and rapes her over some trash cans. Traumatised and hurt, Tharna manages to get back up to her apartment, where she discovers an intruder has broken in and ransacked the house, who then proceeds to hold her at gunpoint again. Finding no money, the man decides to rape her instead. As the assault continues, Tharna grabs a glass ornament and strikes him in the head with it, killing him completely afterwards by slamming a clothes iron into his head. She hurriedly hides the body in her bathtub when it appears a neighbour may come by, and she becomes disturbed at work when she sees her boss Albert tearing the dress off a mannequin, becoming overwhelmed with everyone's subsequent concern. Back at home, she slowly dismembers the body using a serrated bread knife and wraps the body parts in newspaper, washing the entire bathroom to remove traces of his blood. Getting more paranoid at work, she begins to dispose of the body parts bit by bit as she travels to and from work. One day, a pervy streetwalker decides to follow her after being unsuccessful with other women and intercepts her bag that she's dropped. Panicking when he calls at her, Tharna runs for it and ends up being stuck at a dead-end street. As the punk catches up to her, she whips out a pistol and shoots him squarely between the eyes out of fear of another attack. Extremely disturbed, she returns home and vomits into the toilet, only for the nosy landlady, Mrs Nassoni, to barge in with her dog Phil, who sniffs around her fridge. The next day at work, Albert lets Tharna know that he's noticed her decline at work and offers an invite to a Halloween party to cheer her up. Whilst on their lunch break, Tharna and the other girls, Carol, Laurie and Pamela, notice a slimy photographer who's kissing his girlfriend at a table. After they finish, the photographer makes a pass at Tharna outside and she reluctantly goes along with him to his apartment, only to shoot him to death as the elevator door closes. Dressing up for the evening and putting on makeup, Tharna goes out that night and murders a pimp who's attacking one of his girls over some money. Wandering near a river, Tharna soon finds herself encircled by five gang members, whom she proceeds to shoot down in quick succession. After this incident, she hops into a limousine owned by a Saudi Arabian businessman who believes that she's a prostitute. After paying her money, Tharna guns him down as well as his chauffeur, washing her hands of blood in her apartment by the time the sun rises. Albert lectures Tharna further for skipping work after her lunch breaks, but she manages to placate him by agreeing to go with him to the Halloween party. That night, Tharna follows a young man to his apartment block and is about to shoot him when he gets inside, hampering her plans. Going to a nearby bar, Tharna sits next to a man who's recently split up with his cheating girlfriend, who relays the tale of when he found his wife in bed with another woman. After describing that he strangled his wife's cat in revenge, Tharna attempts to shoot him, only for him to notice the gun jamming. He takes it from her hands, and after a moment's consideration, he puts the gun to his head and kills himself. Tharna and the rest of her work friends are let off early due to the Halloween party later that night, which Tharna utilises to take Mrs Nassoni's dog Phil out for a walk, fearing that he will eventually unearth a body part from the fridge. She takes him to the riverbank and ties him to a piece of rebar, appearing to shoot him. After leaving a note with Mrs Nassoni explaining that Phil has run away, Tharna dresses up in her nun costume and goes to the party with Albert, oblivious to the fact that Mrs Nassoni is snooping in her apartment, finding her rapist's severed head. Albert beckons for Tharna to come upstairs with him, where he attempts to seduce her. 
she retaliates by shooting him dead. Going into a sudden frenzy, Thana then begins to target and shoot all of the male partygoers as the crowd looks on in horror. Unable to let it continue, her friend Laurie grabs a knife, and as Thana shoots a male guest dressed in a wedding outfit, she plunges the knife into Thana's back, killing her. As she falls, Thana utters the word, sister, and dies as she hits the floor. Back at the apartment, Mrs Nassoni weeps as she feels that Thana has killed her dog Phil, only for him to come trotting back upstairs as the film ends. I was fed up. I had to find out. So I told her I was lurking late one night, real late. And I hid across the street in an alley behind some garbage cans. She walked down the street a couple of blocks and went into a building in Brownstone. On up and I checked out the buzzers. There were four names up there. I didn't recognize none of them. So I tried the door and it was locked. I tried to force it, but it wouldn't give. I tried the side door, the one that they bring the garbage out in. It was open. Went in the back. A dark window. I looked in. There's a candlelight. I saw her with her arms around another woman. When I got back to our place, I went in the bathroom, brushed my teeth, and washed my face. Then I went in the bedroom, changed my shirt, and then I went out in the kitchen and I strangled her cat. Taking its cue from vigilante films like Death Wish and The Exterminator, Miss 45 is a rape and revenge film from auteur director Abel Ferrara. It's rather different in that respect to a lot of the other films of the genre, especially that it de-emphasises the sexual aspects of the film and focuses more on the subsequent revenge. While the milestone classics like Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave are much more harrowing and iconic, they also put a much larger emphasis on the sexual aspects of the story, whether it be more sexually violent acts and more disturbing humiliations in Last House, or a more sexualised protagonist and emphasis on the rape itself featured in I Spit on Your Grave. Miss 45, however, while still quite harrowing in these scenes, refuses to sexualise either the main character Thana or eroticise her ordeal in any way, choosing instead to explore her post-traumatic stress and reaction to her rape by transforming into a theoretical angel of death. The first thing that strikes the viewer is the dire situation of where Thana lives. Apart from being mute and already locked away from a significant portion of society, her residence in the city of New York City is anything but ideal. It's the 1980s after all, so New York is the typical grotty, litter-filled, dangerously grimy and thoroughly unsafe place that it often is. When work time is over, the girls are harried as soon as they leave the clothes shop, wolf-whistled and catcalled by every random male on the street. 
In a particularly nasty sequence, Thana is grabbed by a masked thug and raped over a pile of garbage-filled trash cans in an alleyway. It's also arbitrary and opportunistic, a very random attack in almost every sense of the word. Her rapist is just a nameless masked man, a symbol of the filth that's thriving in this underbelly of nastiness. Her trauma continues even further when she returns home to find a burglar rifling through her stuff, who then attacks her and rapes her once more. The second one is more disturbing for the viewer simply because of the longer duration and the fact that the burglar is a lot more personally vile, suggesting that what he's doing will cure Thana of her muteness. Again, like the previous rape sequence though, there's no focus on any bare skin, Thana's breasts or anything else. The scene focuses solely on the pain that the act is inflicting. It's rather realistic too in that Thana undergoes almost every stage of a rape experience, such as the initial shock, the struggle and the pain section, to the dissociation and the shutting down. But then it becomes something else, a strong urge to lash out violently. This sequence is teased for a long time with a rather Freudian symbol of Thana stroking a glass apple ornament during her assault. Just like Eve was seduced by the serpent in the Bible, Thana eventually gives in to that temptation and strikes her attacker hard in the face, completely killing him by smashing a clothes iron into the back of his head. Shortly afterwards, she suffers the immediate effects of post-traumatic stress, vomiting into the toilet and being disturbed at rather innocuous things in her life, like her reflection in a mirror, which conjures a phantom image of her attacker. Any reference to the rape after that, such as Albert violently tearing a piece of material from a mannequin, or even the sight of a trash can being emptied, triggers a strong anxiety and panic within Thana, represented quite well by the focus on her reactions and point-of-view shots where her concerned workmates appear quite threateningly suffocating and overwhelmingly claustrophobic. This linking of similar ideas is also represented by some clever editing, such as the cut from Thana striking her rapist with an iron, cutting to some freshly cracked eggs in a pan. The shooting of the photographer, cutting to Thana smearing red lipstick on. Or even Thana's death, cutting to the sight of blood-red roses. The music too is complicit in conveying Thana's extreme trauma, using intensely jumpy and flighty strings, haunting piano melodies and synthesised pulses and bleeps to signify quite a ceaseless madness. This madness though is quite key to the film's entire experience, as it festers long enough to transmute into something else, a desire for killing. In order to deal with the fact that her nosy neighbour may come across it, or that her workmates may may become suspicious, Thana deals with the first victim's body by carefully dismembering it with a serrated bread knife and wrapping parts in newspaper to dispose of strategically throughout the city. This is a great image really as it almost suggests that her ordeal is now adding to the large amounts of garbage being dumped around the city in quite a literal sense. Of course, this can't go unnoticed for too long, and when a random streetwalker decides to intercept one of her packages to give it back to her, in exchange for some nookie, presumably, he's swiftly dealt with by Thana in a shocking moment where she whips out a forty-five pistol and shoots him right in the forehead. It's both a shocking and elating scene, both for the viewer and for Thana, and who's clearly a wrong one by harassing women on the street and verbally abusing them when they don't respond, so it's quite natural to assume that Thana was next on his list. His act of retrieving her dropped package may seem benevolent, but it's obviously rooted in a reason to talk and try to seduce her, 
which does lend credence to the idea that someone's criminal behaviour can literally influence others to act badly, though in this example it's quite an extreme case. Thana feels scared, threatened and completely cornered, as there's no escape from the dead end that she's reached. She reacts to the threat by eliminating it, and while there's clearly fear in her eyes, it soon becomes a wave of calm, almost an endorphin-induced bliss as she's ensured her safety. After this point, the film really gets into the meat of revenge, as Thana continues to carry her pistol around and encounters similarly sleazy characters whom you have no problem seeing dispatched at all. You start to cheer her on, really, as each caricatured male threat easily earns your ire from just a few words. Around halfway through the film, Thana begins to change even more, and the tone of the film's revenge aspect becomes much more grey, and quite clever with it. She begins to target men who just look remotely suspicious, or pervy, whether that be from a jealous ex who's a bit bitter, or a guy that kisses his girlfriend a little too aggressively. Much like the ridiculous notion that women who dress provocatively or act flirty are asking for rape, Thana undergoes a similar adoption of the idea that certain men are asking for it, killing them at the slightest hint of offensive sexual behaviour or just certain trigger words. Her behaviour starts to become ever more ambiguous and quite hard to justify, such as following a completely innocent man who's just kissed his girlfriend goodbye and trying to kill him or talking to a recently split-up man, causing him to commit suicide when her gun fails to discharge. Arguably, though, he did strangle a cat, so I tend to think that he deserved this. In the film's finale, Albert's seduction tips her over the edge, and she just begins shooting any man that's in her vicinity, regardless of guilt or innocence, which is rather at odds, really, considering she's dressed as a vestal nun in the film's climax. Even visually, the film takes on a stark new skin after featuring mainly muted urban greys and metallic tones in the film, only to now start featuring occasional flashes of vibrant red. Thana is the main vehicle of this, though, especially as she starts the film looking rather dishevelled and frumpy. But as she begins to take her vengeance, she noticeably becomes more in control, even dressing more provocatively and powerfully. Despite still being mute, she really starts to exude a power from being able to just punish the bad guys of the film, even managing to speak a word as her vengeance concludes with her death. While her rape experience is not sexualised, it's rather novel and interesting that she becomes more sexualised as her revenge becomes more prominent, putting on thick lipstick and even kissing the bullets of her forty-five in a near-eroticised fantasy of violence. Even the scene of her dressing up for the Halloween party is punctuated by Thana play-shooting her gun in various poses, almost adding the violent intent as part of the dressing-up ritual of getting ready for a night out. It's quite fascinating, really. Thana elicits a great deal of sympathy even at this late stage of the film, simply because there's an innocent playfulness to her actions. By the end of the film, though, Thana has gone completely nuts, firing at any male figure around her, regardless of witnesses or any repercussions of her actions. One particular moment in the film's climax, though, has tons of Freudian subtext attached to it. While dressed as a nun, Thana hesitates as she spots another male victim who's dressed in a bridal wedding dress and veil. Trying to work out if it is indeed a man, and therefore worthy of her revenge, she fails to notice her friend Laurie, who's grabbed a knife behind her, holding it between her legs as though it were a phallus. 
as Thana shoots the man, the blood spatters spoil the virginal, innocent white of his costume, almost symbolising the loss of innocence that she suffered. And at this critical moment, Thana is then killed by Lori, who stabs her in the back with the phallic object, which also arguably represents the moment that she began her quest for vengeance. As she dies... It's almost like she realises the irony of her actions and the almost equally ruinous life path that she's chosen compared to her rapists and she's finally able to utter a word. Sister. This is either accusatory, being quite shocked that she'd be felled by a fellow female or out of gratefulness, allowing her to finally see the error of her ways before she dies. Apart from Tharna though, the other characters don't make too much of an impression really. It's her story first and foremost. Everyone else feels like a thread of the complicated weave of the city, merely present just to add to the dangerous environment. Like her boss, Albert, for example, who's quite unfeeling and merely tells her to get better when she's clearly struggling. He uses an occasion involving boys at a Halloween party, which is clearly not the right thing to do, in order to make her feel better. And he later tries to seduce her himself, despite, to me, seeming like he was a homosexual. Her friend Laurie is quite defensive, speaking up for herself when the sleazy photographer tries to schmooze his way onto their table. Quite admirable, but it's dwarfed really in comparison to Thana's actions. The landlady and her dog seem to be present for comic relief really, a la the comedy cops from Wes Craven's film, but their plotline at least gives us some relief when it appears that Phil the dog was merely tied up by Thana after all and returns home. The film at least drew a line with regard to Thana's capabilities, and I'm sure that a lot of people would agree that if she'd actually killed an innocent animal, we'd be far less forgiving of her. The sexual aspects of the film are kept thankfully minor, and they focus more on the violence of the act itself, ultimately meaning that the screenplay's other violent gunshots and mutilations fit in quite tonally with the rest of the picture. It's enjoyably visceral, suitably grimy, and it's quite a hot potato of a movie, but it really says something, and it's quite an empowering film for women. It deglamorizes the act of rape and returns that sexuality back to the woman, who now uses it to galvanise her vengeance against all those who threaten her. Honestly, go out and see this now if you haven't already. I absolutely love this film. Zoe Lund played the role of Tharna, and she'd later collaborate with Abel Ferrara on the script of 1992's Bad Lieutenant. She was actually a rather prolific writer and a professional model as well, but due to quite a candid heroin addiction, Lund tragically passed away at the age of just 37 in France. Named obviously after Thanatos, the Greek word for death, Lund is quite mesmerising in this role as she's so effective despite not saying a word. Her expressions say everything and coming from one person so young, she was truly a trooper and she deserves to be remembered for this alone. Pamela, one of Tharna's work friends, was played by Nike Zakmanoglu, who's had various bit roles as victims in 1978's Dr. Dracula and 1980's Alligator, and she's worked often as a script supervisor on productions like Trick or Treats, Embalmed, The Final Terror and The Ladies Club. Director Abel Ferrara himself played the first rapist of Tharna, while Peter Yellen, who played the second one, was also in Ferrara's video nasty film Driller Killer. Now, he was quite notably prolific as a singer, and he did songs for various soundtracks, including Bad Lieutenant, and even the song Fall Break, which we heard on the slasher film The Mutilator. 
Alex Jacno played the chauffeur of the Saudi Arabian man. He was mainly an electrician and a gaffer for film productions, working on projects like Forever Young, Schindler's List, Galaxy Quest, and even the Prison Break TV series. A Random Guy in the Bar was played by Jack Thibault, who had various small character roles in stuff like Apocalypse Now, Escape from Alcatraz, The Hitcher, and Lethal Weapon. Nicholas St. John, who played one of the policemen, was actually Abel Ferrara's writer of choice, who worked on Driller Killer, his pornographic film Nine Lives of the Wet Pussy, Fear City, China Girl, King of New York, Body Snatchers, and The Addiction. Steve Dash, who played the other policeman, was a stuntman on stuff like Nine and a Half Weeks and Ghostbusters, but he's most notably known for portraying Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th Part 2. He also portrayed a policeman in The Jazz Singer and a doctor in Jack Shoulders Alone in the Dark, and he actually tragically passed away just recently in December of 2018. Director Abel Ferrara was a Bronx-born auteur who started making films in his early teens before starting on low-budget exploitation films in the 70s. After making several shorts, he made a pornographic film in 1976 called Nine Lives of the Wet Pussy, but it was arguably his 1979 entry that catapulted him into the public eye, Driller Killer, which was utterly notorious in the UK as one of the banned video nasties. His next film in 1981 was Miss 45, which at this point was starting to signal a much more burgeoning talent within him. Over the years, Ferrara has been able to secure involvement from many highly respected actors, such as Harvey Keitel for his film Bad Lieutenant and Christopher Walken for King of New York, but he was never truly able to resist filming in his native New York, having a real talent for telling narratives in the grimy, grungy underbelly of city life in America. After the 9-11 attacks, though, Ferrara permanently relocated to Rome in Italy, where he continues to make movies to this day. Nicholas St. John was the writer, as mentioned before, while Richard Howarth produced the film. He'd appeared in Driller Killer in a minor role, he assisted on the editing of Miss 45, as well as a dialogue editor on the video nasty Friday the 13th Part 2. Another producer, Mary Kane, also worked on most of Ferrara's filmography, as both a producer and a production manager, while Arthur Weisenberg, who was the executive producer, also worked on Nine Lives of the Wet Pussy, Jurla Killer and Drive-In Massacre. The music was done by Joe Delia, who likewise worked on most of Ferrara's copybook, as well as 1990's Caged Fury and 2011's Dirty Movie. The cinematographer was James Lemo in his debut feature. He later went on to the slasher film Madman in 1981, 1982's Vigilante and Maniac Cop 1 and 2. The editor on the picture was Christopher Andrews, who also worked on Cat Chaser and King of New York, as well as being the music and sound editor on Miss 45 as well. The special effects makeup were done by a mixed group of people, one of which was Laurie Aiello, who worked on 1984's Silent Madness and Violated. There was also John Paul McIntyre, who mainly worked as a dolly grip on stuff like China Girl, King of New York and Bad Lieutenant. But finally, there was Matt Vogel, whom we've encountered before when we covered Robot Holocaust and Street Trash. He, of course, worked on the video nasties Don't Go in the House and The Nesting, as well as the slasher picture Madman, Alone in the Dark, 1983's Breeders, Frankenhooker, Maniac Cop 2, and Tom Savini's remake of Night of the Living Dead. 
Miss 45 was released in the US cinemas to rather scathing reviews from critics, but despite this, it managed to gain a considerable return from its meagre $62,000 budget and has today been reclaimed as an important cult film with a lot to say. It sadly skipped the UK cinemas, but a British VHS release under the title Angel of Vengeance was released in 1984 by Warner Home Video. It was an uncut print as well, and considering the genre, explicit scenes of murder, and the fact that the director had unleashed Driller Killer on the British public, I'm really surprised that this one wasn't picked up by police. The uncut version, though, was discontinued when the Video Recordings Act was enacted in 1985. But just prior to that coming into effect, Warner Brothers submitted the film to the BBFC, who cut the film by 1 minute and 42 seconds. This was to reduce all the scenes of rape to a bare minimum, as well as removing a shot of an arm being removed with a bread knife. This version was re-released in 1986, only to then receive an additional two-second cut to remove the sight of a nunchuck being twirled around. This version was the last version released in the UK, and sadly, this firecracker of a film is currently unavailable on any modern formats in the UK. The US, however, does have DVD and Blu-ray versions available, recently remastered by Alamo Drafthouse Films in 2013 from the original negatives. And that's everything for today, chaps. It's finito. Gone. Goose egg. Nasty pasties done for this week, so I need to extend my thanks yet again to everyone for joining me with today's films. Did you like them? Have you seen them? Or would you consider seeing them? I love talking about these films, so do get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Nasty Pasty Podcast on both, and I'm sure I'd pop up. It's the icon with a blood-stained pasty on it, so I'm sure that you'd be able to spot it. Next week, as ever, we'll be returning with another duo of films, and I'm sure that this one will be looked forward to by a lot of us. I'm coming back to the slasher film for two glorious blood letters, this time focusing on mad slashers, with titles that really emphasise the nastily violent nature of these killers. They are 1980's Maniac and 1981's Madman, both quite well known and both quite free and easy with the claret stuff. But until next week, though, guys, have a great weekend, and Uncle Andy will be back before you know it. Good boo!